Victoria Arbiter is a royal commentator for CNN. She's also the author of Elizabeth II in the Pocket Giant series, which is a biography of Queen Elizabeth published by the History Press. Victoria, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to join you. Could you please tell us what you do as a royal correspondent? What does that mean? As a royal correspondent, royal commentator, my job really is to provide analysis on the British royal family. That's my area of expertise. So oftentimes there'll be a reporter stationed at a royal event. Let's take Prince George's birth, for example. Max Foster was outside the Lindo Wing in London, and my job was to be in the studio offering analysis. So why did George's birth matter? What were the traditions associated with it? What was new about it? What could we expect from it? So you have extensive knowledge, not just of the family, but also of British history. Extensive. Well, Mm -hmm. I I hope so. Uh, Within reason, I probably couldn't go too deep politically. But certainly when it comes to the royal family, I've always loved history. At school, there was a big focus on 20th century history, World War One, World War Two. And I always just loved those particular topics. And so to find myself in a job that I actually never really sought out to be doing, that is watching a living history sort of ticks all the boxes of my passions. And I read in the acknowledgments of Queen Elizabeth, that you have a very interesting and unique window into the royal family. You thanked your father and you had mentioned that he had put you on top of television van. Could you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, My parents divorced when I was quite small and I was raised by my father, which was very unusual for the late 70s, early 80s. And at the time, he was serving as the court correspondent for LBC News Radio. But what that allowed for was oftentimes at weekends, dad couldn't get a babysitter. So it was like, we were going to have to come with me. So (laughs) rather than worrying about where I was, he'd parked me on the roof of a news van, whether we were at Trooping the Colour or the Cenotaph or the Lord Mayor's show. Through that, he was offered a grace and favour apartment at Kensington Palace, which we then moved into. So we lived at Kensington Palace for a little while and an invitation was extended by the Prince and Princess of Wales to join their press office. And so that then allowed for an even greater understanding of how the royal system works. I got to experience these ceremonial royal events in a way that many other people didn't. And my dad's knowledge was so extensive as well. I loved, to this day, I love the music provided by the mast bands and those marching bands. And I just get very jazzed by a fly past all of that. And I think it just harkens back to an idyllic time with my dad. And so with that background and upbringing and window into the family, when you do provide your commentary, it is really not conjecture but also I'm assuming a lot of research that you've had to do for various events. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I do mountains of research before I go on anything, even if it's a topic that I think I'm particularly well-versed in. I always like to bring something new to the table that perhaps royal fans, royal watchers have never known before. I also like to bust myths out of the water that have become fact over the years. Do you, as a correspondent for CNN, feel that the audience is different from, say, when your father was reporting for the British audience. Do you see a difference between the two groups? I think it was Diana that largely developed Americans' interest in the royal family. The American audience was just captivated by her, as were the British audience. But I think the Americans, what's most interesting is oftentimes there's not the same level of understanding of how the system works. Through no fault of the American audience, they simply don't know it in the way that the British do. We take it in by osmosis because we see it all the time. It's been there for over a thousand years. So it's what we know. And so I think oftentimes I find with an American audience, some things need to be 
be explained a little bit more. They're not celebrities, so they're held accountable in a totally different way to celebrities. And I think sometimes people find that difficult to understand too, particularly in such a celebrity-driven culture. Absolutely. And part of what I find fascinating in media psychology, media research studies, is that there's this sense that as consumers of media and as participants now with social media, even more so than ever before, that we have the right to say that Meghan Markle broke protocol without really knowing what that is about. And so when something like that happens and you try to clarify what protocol really is, what is the response Oftentimes people don't like to respond to that because it's Mm. skewering the narrative that they were perhaps wanting to follow. Recently, there was a story about the British Queen trolling Donald Trump by her choice of brooches. Now, I Mm. went in to do one entertainment show on that topic and I said, guys, come on, this is a storm in a teacup. The Queen is politically neutral. She's been in this job for over 66 years. She's not trolling the President of the United States. And yet... That particular entertainment show were saying, well, we don't want to poo-poo the story because, of course, it was much more interesting to think, well, the Mm. Queen is trolling Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. So oftentimes when you try to correct the narrative, people aren't terribly responsive to it because it's much more fun to think, well, the Queen wore that particular brooch just so she could stick it to the president. So another example of that, I found out that I was being widely quoted as saying Meghan Markle would not be allowed a baby shower as and when she's expecting. And I was horrified. I thought, I never said that. So I then remembered that in 2013, I gave an interview to ABC News. And during that interview, we were discussing why it was unlikely that the Duchess of Cambridge would have a baby shower for Prince George. And there are a number of legitimate reasons. First of all, Brits generally don't do baby showers. They'd rather have a little gathering after the baby's born Mm. because we often don't find out the gender of our baby. So this quite a lot of reason to it. Mm -hmm. Also, it would be quite unseemly for a member of the royal family to be seen to be having a very public baby shower. They are so privileged. They have so much already. Did Kate do one behind the scenes? It's possible. The point was, I never said a royal was not allowed. But what had happened was, whoever wrote those articles took quotes from a five-year-old interview, twisted them and turned them around to suit a narrative that was negative and critical about Meghan. So this is sort of what we're dealing with now. The royal family does not poo-poo these stories. They would need an entire department working 24 hours a day if they were going to respond to every incorrect story. Unless it's libelous or really quite dangerous, they're not going to say anything. With all of this, and even with your experience with that particular story that was completely distorted, there's this concept called parasocial interaction and relationship. And I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's the idea that the media consumer develops this fairly familiar and almost intimate relationship with a celebrity figure or someone in the media. And what's interesting about this is that it's completely one-sided. So it's not as if the queen, Meghan Markle, is tweeting something back to a particular person or a group or an audience, but there are things that people say, such as, oh, she shouldn't have worn that, she broke something, some protocol, or that she looks a certain way, that there's this sort of ease in which people insert themselves after having read, listened to various media segments about someone. And I'd love to talk about this because, especially with the royals, they hold both a very personal but also a very public role. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
what people are responding to. Is it the position that they're holding or is it who they are or does it get mixed in a bit? I think it gets mixed yeah. in a little bit. We really, really see that with the Megan fans and the Kate fans. Mm. And there is no in-between. Now, there are a few lucid people who understand that actually Megan and Kate don't hate each other. They're quite supportive of each other. They're married to brothers who are incredibly close. They actually have a, a very warm and friendly relationship. Kate is there to offer guidance and support to Megan. Megan is incredibly accomplished in her own right, but it's nice for her to know that she can turn to Kate, who's been in the job. And what do you mean by the job? As, Having married into the royal yeah, family. So yeah. uh, Kate got married in 2011. Mm -hmm. But Kate has had time to sort of adapt and evolve to this position. Megan has been thrown in completely at the deep end. Harry is already a full-time working member of the royal family. As such, Megan has had to join him at his side. There's not been quite the same room for her to get used to the position, I suppose. Luckily, she's an incredibly well-educated, smart, independently successful woman in her own right. So she's going to be just fine. But you see these fans who appear to believe that they have a very close relationship with either Meghan or Kate. You see it a little bit with William and Harry as well, but it's definitely... The ladies that experience this on a deeper level and you'll see comments like oh I'm so proud of Kate today she did this this and this talking almost as if she's their sister their mother mm -hmm. their best friend to me it seems a little patronizing what do you mean you're proud of, <laughs> of this woman who's holding this incredibly important position I suppose and doing the work that's expected of her it seems an odd turn of phrase to me but it speaks of a familiarity that that person is feeling towards Kate. You see it play out through their clothes. Oftentimes girls will post, they call it a copy Kate. So they'll find an outfit that Kate wore and then they'll manage to find the cheaper version <laughs> uh -huh. of it that they can afford or a replicate. That's another word mm -hmm. for it, replicate. So they're trying to dress like their favourite duchess as well. But it's quite interesting and sometimes a little creepy. Yeah. And the original psychologists who have talked about this said it can get creepy, although in many ways it's a very natural phenomenon. And it starts very young with children who identify with certain characters. And they may even be characters on a children's TV show, not even humans, and say, oh, I like that personality. And there's some kinship that develops. But it does get creepy when it starts to isolate oneself from mm -hmm. the real world and has that as a substitute for really getting to know someone beyond this sort of media image that's created. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Where, where I do find it positive, what I can appreciate is I would much rather someone be looking up to Megan and Kate and using their example to then go and do good in their communities versus watching Kim Kardashian and thinking they've got to contour their face and have the right handbag. The way Meghan and Kate, or the royal family, I suppose, have to conduct themselves in rather a two-dimensional capacity because we never hear their opinions. We rarely get to see their true personality. So people can even project how they want that person to be. And so that's why I think you get these very, very strong feelings of either I am a Kate fan or I am a Meghan fan, and they rarely cross over. And I find that bizarre. Oh, I didn't even know that, that there's sort of an either or with the two women. Oh, very much so. Interesting. Do you know if any of this gets mentioned to the royal family? It's the job of the press office to be mm -hmm. on top of everything, to know what's going on. William and Kate are quite good. They don't look at any of it. 
Harry has always been very sensitive and he's been known to have secret social media accounts. He reads all of it and he takes it all very personally. Megan came from a, a world where she had to be prolific on social media. Mm-hmm. She had a, a gazillions of followers on Instagram. She had a blog, The Tig, that was very successful. So I would imagine it's probably hard for her to duck out of it completely when she was so immersed in it. With this, you mentioned the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and I pulled up some ratings from Nielsen. And on that day, Saturday, May 19th, for the U.S., it was much earlier. Yes, 7 a.m. it kicked (laughs) off here, yes. And there were approximately 29 million viewers. That, to me, sounds like an extraordinary number. I don't know what the Super Bowl gets, but... I can tell you. Oh, you can tell me. You can tell me. But for a British foreign event, Mm -hmm. to be getting those kinds of numbers, that's dramatic. It's incredible. And to go to the Super Bowl, there were about 103 million viewers for the entire game. And another statistic is that for President Trump's State of the Union address in January, there were 45 million viewers. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's I like hearing these numbers because the legitimate news sometimes will say, Oh, we don't want to cover royals, that's fluffy news. Well clearly twenty nine million people mm-hmm. cared. And for the William and Kate wedding, US was number one at wow. about fifty six percent of all the social media buzz, followed by the UK, which was only seventeen percent. That's a big difference. Yeah. For Harry and Meghan's mm-hmm. wedding, CNN said it was their biggest outside international broadcast in the network's history. Of course, uh, it was going to be a bigger draw to Americans because of the American involvement in it, Meghan marrying into the royal family. But to think that CNN, which is all politics, very hardcore news, that that kind of focus would go into a British royal wedding just goes to show this level of interest is off the charts. I was in England three weeks before the royal wedding and there was definitely a ramp up to the big day. For William and Kate's wedding, I happened to be in the UK for four months before the royal wedding. And that was interesting because I would be covering for American networks. So the wedding was in April. In February, the American networks would be saying, so is everyone in the UK excited? And I said, well, no, not Mm. yet. Because the (laughs) Brits don't tend to get excited until the day before. So they will be excited. They're just not yet. Whereas the Americans couldn't get enough of it four months out. And I think that's because the difference, I suppose, what I recognize anyway in the difference between the English and American coverage is Americans by nature are very positive people. They love a feel-good story. They love a sense of of a self-made person. So the Middleton Mm. family, for example, were much maligned in the UK for being self-made millionaires. They were seen as jumping their class. They were seen Mm -hmm. as being above their station. Whereas in America, if you're a self-made millionaire, well, you've done good. You've made it. Um, And that is celebrated here. And I love Mm -hmm. that about the American culture. I think with Harry and Meghan's wedding, the reason it became so popular is people just needed a break from the bad news. I mean, you can't turn on any channel. Even all the entertainment channels are focused on the Trump presidency. When was Entertainment Tonight ever covering politics? They do now. And so I think Harry and Meghan's wedding just offered a brief respite from what feels at the moment like the world is sort of falling apart. When Prince George was born, Kate was incredibly popular. There there were just bountiful stories about how perfect a royal she was. Everything she did turned to gold. She did nothing Mm. wrong. She was the most perfect royal bride to marry into the royal family. So 
Right before George was born, the changes in the laws to succession had been pushed through, which meant the birth of a daughter was going to be historically very, very exciting. And in the lead up to George's birth, I must have said a thousand times how personally I was really hoping for a girl. Obviously, a healthy baby, most important, but I was hoping for a girl because of what it would mean Mm -hmm. historically. For the first time ever, a girl could not be usurped by a younger born brother. This is big stuff. And I had said it numerous times. Well, I really hadn't taken into account, I suppose, figuring in live television that people will interpret things that you say. They might not understand irony. They might not understand wit. They might not know the historical context. So Brooke Baldwin said to me, so what are your first thoughts? And I, thinking about Anne Boleyn and how maligned she was for not being able to produce a boy, how Henry VIII was desperate for a boy, women were losing their lives over not delivering a boy. Of course, we know science now. It's the man that did term is the sex of the baby but uh what a learning curve for me i said it just goes to show what a perfect royal gate is because mm-hmm. she had delivered a boy first time yeah. do you know what Anne Boleyn would have given to deliver a boy first time <laughs> well some 22 year old whatever reporter for the huffington post took that quote determined i was a sexist and misogynist mm. i should be fired i didn't understand science i didn't understand feminism she ran with this article but she never called me for comment. Now, for me, as a journalist, even if you think I did all of those things, Mm -hmm. you should call me for comment so I can at least clarify. I was being called the most heinous things you can possibly imagine. And I take it very personally. And I got home that night. I'd worked a a 19-hour day. I was exhausted. And my agent called me practically doing cartwheels. He said, you're being skewered on the Daily Show right now. He was thrilled. I could not stop crying. I could not pull myself together because I take my job so seriously. And I take my role within my job so incredibly seriously. And I couldn't believe that one comment I had said dripping with irony as far as I was concerned had been so misconstrued and that still nobody had called me to clarify. So I wrote an article and sure enough, it it, it got a few follows or likes or minor retweet. But I got to say my piece and I got to explain and I got to set a few people straight. And I was also able to post a video that I had done months before George was born in which I had said how much I was hoping for a girl. But I learned in a very, very hard way that people are going to interpret things to suit their own agenda and you can't rely on people anymore to do the decent thing in terms of their journalism etiquette I suppose yeah. it was a horrible horrible experience it's, it is a shame that it was you became a different person yes so I guess then that leaves us with sort of our responsibility as consumers to just make sure that what we read isn't just salacious mm-hmm. gossip as juicy as it can be and as attractive as it can be, but also to just take a step to sort of process what it is that we're reading and think about what the facts may be. I think you just delivered the best advice ever. They need to put that on a t-shirt. Do people really think the Queen is bothered about Meghan wearing pants? Let's think about that for a minute. If the Queen was bothered about Meghan wearing pants, would Meghan still be wearing pants? No. So I urge everyone to just take a step back, process it, take it in, read it, let common sense prevail. And then if you're still curious about it, Twitter's an amazing forum to go to a source that you trust. Tweet them, ask them. There are lots of ways to get this information. And to use social media to do that in In a a positive positive way. way. Yeah. 
in a positive Mm way. We do see it, you know, sometimes if there's an Amber Alert and a post goes out on Twitter and suddenly that child is found. What an amazing way to use that platform. Or somebody needs a kidney donated and suddenly that goes out on social media. Someone lost their wedding ring in Times Square. That wedding ring was found (laughs) because of social media. So it can be used in a very positive fashion if everyone would just come down off their soapbox. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. And I learned so much and had a really fun time talking with you. Thank you. Likewise, Susan. Thank you very much. <laughs>